0: Welcome to this EBN podcast. My name is Alison Shorten. I'm an associate editor of EBN and an associate professor at the Yale School of Nursing in the United States. Today I'm talking with Louise Cadman, one of our expert commentators. Louise is a research nurse consultant at the Centre for Cancer Prevention at the Wolfson Institute of Preventative Medicine in London. Louise will be talking about cervical screening for survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Welcome, Louise.
1: Thank you, Alison. Firstly,
0: Louise, can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us about your current position at the Centre for Cancer Prevention in London?
1: Yes. Um, As you have said, Alison, I'm a research nurse consultant, and my research is um, particularly focused on cervical screening, uh, cervical cancer screening and prevention. Um, As part of this, we have carried out research exploring why women don't attend for screening and in particular, in those group of women, we identify as being less likely to attend. And under this remit, we carried out a research project in collaboration with NAPAC, which is a UK-based national association for people abused in childhood. And we, we explored their self-reported cervical screening history among women who have been sexually abused, uh, barriers to attendance for screening for these women, and we asked them to identify measures to improve the experience. In addition to my um, research work, I'm also a nurse colposcopist at St. Mary's Hospital and at Bart's Hospital in London, so I'm a cervical sample taker too. Thanks.
0: So let's focus at first on the women who have experienced childhood sexual abuse. What challenges do they face when seeking um, cervical screening?
1: We have to start, obviously, by recognising the parallels of the cervical screening process with the abuse situation. We see that there's a clear power differential between the nurse or doctor who's controlling the situation and making the woman, as the women often perceive it, do what they don't want to do when they're having a cervical screening test. There are also often reminders in the clinic of the examinations that ensued following the discovery of the, the abuse. We also include uh, penetration with objects, which is also something that parallels abuse. And it it, it is the situation and a position that they were also asked to be in when they were abused. And the mind is very clever at helping us cope with things in order to survive. And so the women having cervical screening testing tell us that they dissociate, where they separate their mind from their body. They tell us that the process triggers memories of the abuse and the abuser that they have suppressed in order to get through life, and not just trigger, it, not the, just the examination. The actual letters that they will be sent or the invitation that they're sent telling them that they're due for a smear test can also trigger these responses. And we as screeners or or sample takers open this can of worms, which the women have tried so hard to keep a lid on. And we may be doing this with the best intentions and in ignorance of the abuse. Because disclosure of abuse is such a difficult process, which can take women many years to be able to do, if ever. And and I think there are figures that quote that it takes an average of 22 years to disclose childhood sexual abuse. So... For such women, the fear of discovery of the abuse or or that their abnormal behavior as they perceive it will be seen or that someone will see the physical damage that has occurred can be a huge obstacle to their attending for screening and we make them revisit what they don't want to. Also, some women have lost their sense of entitlement to good treatment. They feel shame and guilt and worthlessness or that they should be punished They feel exposed and looked at through the examination and they liken the cervical screening in some cases to legalised rape and that's how strongly it can um, affect them.
0: It sounds like some enormous challenges for women. So how can providers become more aware of the needs of women who have experienced um, previous abuse?
1: Well, this research has shown us that Although it's difficult for everyone to quantify rates of childhood sexual abuse for many reasons, such as non-disclosure by the abused person, shame and embarrassment, also not being clear that something is sexual abuse um, until many years later. But the respondents to the questionnaire in particular seem to underestimate the rates of abuse, with around 40% of respondents saying that it is below 5%, and only 10% saying that it is greater than 10%. And from one of our National Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Children reports in the UK in 2000, it was estimated that up to 21% of girls under 16 experience sexual abuse. So the first thing that this research shows us is that that we, as um, care providers or we as clinicians do tend to underestimate the size of the problem. Um, the other thing that I, I find of interest in, in this paper is that the perceived indicators of abuse that, that um, the clinicians reported tended to be verbal, but actually more of the indicators that women themselves identify are behavioral and nonverbal. So the participants, it of who responded to the survey expected, expressed concern about opening up memories when asking questions about abuse or encouraging disclosure. So they, this, if you think of the can of worms, again, this is the clinicians not wanting to open that can of worms and leaving the person with what they have to then deal with subsequent to this. And this is a sensitive response, but sometimes people want to be given the chance to give a yes or no answer. So in asking someone whether they have been sexually abused, directness isn't always out of place if it's well judged and if it's sensitively done. They also identified that they had training needs Um, and 60% of, less than 60% actually of the questionnaire respondents reported childhood sexual abuse being raised in their cervical screening training. It was raised in other training, but 94% wanted it raised as part of cervical screening training. And they identified a need for that training to include how to respond to disclosure of abuse and how to take a cervical sample if the procedure is extremely difficult for the woman. How do you go ahead? Do you go ahead? And what can you put in place to make it less horrible for her? So do you
0: think that not wanting to open a can of worms, so to speak, is about providers being concerned about how they will... Cope with the answer?
1: I think so. I think from the responses, I think that is certainly something that that the clinicians identified as a problem. They also ask for in the training that they want to incorporate into their cervical screening training. They also talk about wanting to know what to do next with somebody. You know, They, they recognise that actually just sitting there with someone and allowing them to talk about it is in itself supportive, but they want to be able to offer some kind of tangible, tangible support in an ongoing way and aren't always clear what path they should take or they should recommend.
0: So you're talking about increasing awareness about referral services and pathways for ongoing care?
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And so... For this particular research that um, you wrote about in the commentary, can you tell me a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of the methods they used in their
1: study from your perspective? I think one of the the strengths of this research is that it's, has identified an area where we know that there can be a serious impact with evidence to suggest that cervical cancer incidence rates are higher in women who have experienced childhood sexual abuse and that these women are less likely to attend or access regular cervical screening but the perspective they've taken is not so well explored and I personally as someone who takes cervical samples I can identify with many of the issues raised um, and appreciate this perspective sort of downsides it would be interesting to know when the literature search took place as there doesn't seem to be uh, more any of the more recent references included and as a researcher, I know that that's probably the first thing you do, um, but sometimes it's quite nice to revisit it when you've completed your project and just see what new research has become available and and One of the problems as a researcher, when you try to do any kind of questionnaire research, you run the risk of biasing your responses because you need to get a very good response rate to mitigate against those women who complete the call, those people who complete the questionnaire being those with a particular interest in the subject matter. And unfortunately, the response rate in this population of having sent 226 questionnaires out, the response rate is only 27%. And so there is a high potential for bias in the population. But they have tried, the researchers have tried to use mixed methodology, which offers a broader perspective and should in theory glean more information. And they've done that by introducing a focus group. Because focus groups, we believe, tend to add, or there is an argument that they tend to lead to richer information. But with just the one focus group, which was quite small, it would have been nice to have extended that. But as a researcher, I appreciate that uh, focus groups are quite difficult to set up um, and quite time consuming to analyse. So I have great sympathy with them for that.
0: So this particular study was conducted in London. Are the issues raised in this study likely to be internationally important?
1: Absolutely. Um, This isn't just relevant to cervical screening, but also to all kinds of gynaecological care, which could include testing for sexually transmitted infections. Um, Even childbirth can be a trigger. Um, for women who've experienced, experienced sexual abuse. So, care providers will be coming across similar issues across all countries and disciplines, whether there's a screening program in place like we have in the UK or not. And it should also be noted that this is also relevant for other areas of health care, including medical treatments that don't have the obvious connections with sexual abuse that gynaecological care does, and there can be issues surrounding mental health, and even dentistry can be a problem. So
0: what do you think are the main implications for clinical practice here?
1: I think we get an understanding through this research that clinical staff don't feel adequately equipped to deal with the effect of cervical screening on their patients who have experienced childhood sexual abuse and don't feel altogether supported themselves. Um, there seems to be a lack of awareness of the size of the problem. Um, and I would, I would ask you, if in your practice you have a woman who doesn't attend for regular screening, have you considered that childhood sexual abuse may be a factor in her non-attendance? So yeah, I think that's one thing that we have to open our, our sort of minds to, that, that other, other issues, so somebody who um, hops doctor, So who goes to various doctors in order to avoid the question of cervical screening coming up, Um, that is somebody that maybe there are reasons why they're doing that that could be related to abuse or rape or childhood sexual abuse. So that's something it's worth having your sort of mind open to as well.
0: So what future research is needed in this area?
1: I think we need to look at ways that we can address this issue. There are no clinics, to my knowledge, um, specifically dedicated to cervical screening in women who have experienced sexual abuse in childhood or adulthood, although I know of clinics that people are trying to set up. And we have provisions for when women first enter the system, if you can call it that, because that does sound rather crass. But This is a lifelong problem, and cervical screening is a process and not a single event. And there's evidence to suggest that women may go for one one cervical screening test but then don't return. But we don't know this, so it would be really useful to get a view on attendance for cervical screening in the general population with regard to sexual abuse. And to date, we have an idea that those who respond to questionnaires don't attend, but we don't know how many people in in the general population do. So most of this work in who doesn't attend for screening and who has been um, sexually abused is done through websites where you can connect with abuse survivors. So I think that we could do with knowing a little bit more about the size of the problem And also a little bit more about what kind of training people do actually get in terms of the screeners or the sample takers, the clinicians, what training they do get, because we don't really know that either. I also think in terms of research, I think we need to continue to look at alternative ways to screen women who can't undergo cervical screening. Whether that be through some kind of self-sampling, whether that be through exploring taking cervical samples in different ways in different positions for more traditional cytology screening, I think they're areas we also need to explore with research.
0: So do you have one final message for our listeners?
1: i I suppose what I would like to sort of say is that all clinicians who take cervical samples in the u k in particular and one presumes elsewhere need to update their training regularly, so why don't we request that this topic is covered in our next update training, and why don't we tell the training providers that we think it's missing or what we believe is missing from this our knowledge in this area? I would also ask people to look at ways they can set up a support network within their own clinical area, somewhere where they can go after a difficult consultation and debrief or reflect upon the event. Um, and I would also like to sort of say, remember that as a cervical as a sample taker, you can reduce the power differential and share control with the woman in front of you. And it may help her go through with the screening. That. Trust is a theme that comes up again and again, and the woman has to be able to build up trust and mutual respect with her clinician. Um, And that can come through just talking, talking about to every woman when you take a sample How does this usually affect you? Is there anything I can do that will make it better? And perhaps most of all, just saying, if you tell me to stop, I will do as I'm told. You're in charge and you can control me as much as I'm in the the position of power. So I think those are just small things that screeners can take away and integrate into their practice.
0: So what you're saying, Louise, is any woman you're caring for as a provider is someone who has been potentially abused and there are ways that you can provide your care in a consistent way that will meet many women's needs and certainly the needs of women that have been sexually abused.
1: Yes, I think there are many strategies that we could adopt that are relevant both for women who have experienced abuse and for any woman having a cervical screening test which is not a pleasant experience for anyone. It's about mutual respect and it's about sharing the situation. There are various things we can do, such as asking a woman if she wishes to insert the speculum herself. Some women may find that a preferable technique. We can also say to women that we will stop if they tell us to stop because we we all know about women who said that's too much and the person just carries on regardless because they're nearly there. But actually we need to let women know that they're dictating to us as much as we're dictating to them and that the control is shared. And if a woman says to me, stop, I must reassure her that I will stop straight away. There are other things that we use um, without really thinking about it. So, for example, if you read literature, one of the words that often comes up as a trigger word for women is relax. Now, as a sample taker, I know that no woman can truly relax in that situation, so the use of that word is completely obsolete. It's not constructive for most women, and most women know that that's what they're supposed to do. But actually, if by using that word you're going to trigger that minority of women who have experienced sexual abuse, then... I don't use it as a word. It's not, it's not adding anything to the process for me or for the person from whom I'm trying to take a sample. So there are lots of little things that we can do that could help, but it really is about mutuality and a two-way interaction and a two-way dialogue.
0: Mm. Well, they're all so important, um, Louise, and really gives us a lot to think about and reflect on the way we do things and perhaps... Um, the small changes we can make that would make a huge difference to many women.
1: I hope so, yes.
0: So thank you. We've been talking with Louise Cadman. She's one of our expert commentators from the Centre for Cancer Prevention at the Wilson Institute of Preventative Medicine in London. Thank you so much, Louise.
1: Thank you, Alison.